Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Coming up on this edition, in light of America's spiritual decline, some words of hope related to its latest book from author and commentator Michael Brown of Fire School of Ministry and contributor to The Stream. Then, another in my series of conversations tied into the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. On this edition, it's David Teams who has compiled a devotional book that is centered around the words of the church reformers. Plus, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and former Saturday Night Live cast member and actor Victoria Jackson describes some aspects of her journey and the faith in Christ that sustained her. And on this edition of The Intersection... Perhaps you know Todd Burpo from his book and the movie Heaven is for Real. He's recently released another book in which he explores tough questions about God. Then some comments from Johnny Moore. He's written a book that is a collection of stories of Christians who have faced persecution, but who have experienced God's strength even in the face of discouragement. Finally, some insight into the supernatural realm as it is described in Scripture. Author and Bible scholar Michael Heiser explores some aspects of God and the heavenly hosts. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Michael Brown is an author, commentator, and media host. He's founder and president of Fire School of Ministry and contributor to the website The Stream. He's written a book which not only diagnoses America's spiritual decline, but offers some solutions for hope and healing. It's called Saving a Sick America, a Prescription for Moral and Cultural Transformation. Here now is Michael Brown. I was praying a lot during the hurricanes and many different arguments. This is God sending judgment on America. No, this is just something that has always happened in the world. No, this is the result of man-made global warming. And, And And I said, Lord, what are you saying through all of this? And the one thing I was hearing in my heart is God saying to us, America, you need me. Mm. In other words, you're sick, you're hurting, you're in pain, you're getting torn up by natural disasters, regardless of the cause, you need me. And then we're we're torn so much by political and racial division in America right now, as, as much as I can remember in my lifetime. And then we have this absolutely monstrous shooting and so many lives destroyed and so many people that the the rest of their lives everything's been affected by this and all the speculation we we still don't know a motive we don't know what's going on and once again I, i i'm reminded of that we need god this is just another symptom of how sick we are and and what's the political solution what, what gun control law could stop a monster from doing something like this? What, what social band-aid could we put over the strife in America right now? What, what button do we push to stop the natural disasters? We need as a whole, beginning in the church, to turn to God, not in the complacent way, but to really pray because we're hurting. We're, we're, we're being torn apart right now, and it's really a wake-up time for our nation. The book is all about hope because I was a product of two revolutions – I was a product of the counterculture revolution of the 60s, and that's why I was getting high at the age of 14 and shooting heroin at 15 and in complete rebellion uh, during this season. And then I was a product of the Jesus revolution, and I got radically born again at the age of 16 in 1971. So my values took a complete radical shift. But Time magazine, April 1966, cover story asked the question, is God dead? Five years later, Time magazine, June 1971, cover story, The Jesus Revolution. So all that to say, 
we've had dark times, and out of them, God has moved. And the last chapter of the book is called The Church's Great Opportunity to basically say the world needs what we have. So we lay out, for example, God's prescription for marriage and family and how living by these principles produces healthy relationships and healthy families that multiply and reproduce. We lay out how every human being is created in the image of God because of which the, the baby in the womb and the oldest weak person on, on the planet, they all have value. We lay out how God's ways are ways of life and how if we get out of our minds the things that desensitize us, all the violent entertainment, and instead replace that with wholesome things of life, beginning with scripture meditation, how it can renew our minds. We go through the breakdown in education and the inability to think and, and approaches that we can have, again, based on scripture principles. We talk about the universe revolves around me and the way to get free from that is, is the opposite of what we think. The Jesus way is if you want to keep something, give it away. If you want to live, you die. This is how we overcome, find new life. The entitlement mentality, what's the biblical solution? If you don't work, you don't need personal responsibility. And then ultimately, we need, we need another awakening. So the last chapter uh, emphasizes desperate prayer, uh, going for it in evangelism again, and, and believing God to do the impossible. So we can do what we know how to do day by day by day in our own lives. In other words, it starts with me. I'm responsible for my life, for my family. I can draw that circle and seek to bring about renewal and transformation and show those who know me, hey, God's ways are better. This, the path we're on is destructive. Mm. The American way, it's destructive. We've lost our bearings. Here's a better way. God's ways are ways of life. And while we do that, we pray for awakening in the church, awakening in the culture. And I want to shout out to all your listeners. Yes, America's in critical condition, but it's not too late for our nation. Michael Brown here on The Intersection. You can find out more through the website askdrbrown.org. Next up on this edition of The Intersection, it's author and musician David Teams, writer of the 365-day devotional book entitled Godspeed, Voices of the Reformation. In our conversation, he talked about some of the work of the Reformers, their common beliefs, and more. From that conversation, this is David Teams. I've written an article on my website. It's called Treading Fearfully. And that, and that doesn't mean to be afraid. It just means it, the, the word, the, the adverb, uh, fearfully, is, it, it might, as we hear it in Psalm 139, uh, because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. To tread fearfully is to walk like, like we should tread fearfully in culture today. It's to walk with a kind of inspired kind of watchfulness or to walk about with an awe for life, but also a kind of uh, like an inspired vigilance. And I, de I detected that in these writers. I detected a sobriety among all of them, almost to a, to a person. But there were three things, and this is in my article, there's three things that most of the reformers um, fell back on, or, or uh, we could say that was became their sanctuary, particularly someone like Tyndale and Luther. Another comparison between Tyndale and, Tyndale and Luther, they were both outlaws. You know, now, one of the big differences between Luther and Tyndale, Luther had the backing of uh, Frederick the Wise, you know, basically the, the, uh, the, the duke in charge of, of that part of Saxony. You know, and Luther had his protection, you know, because he was, you know, he hired Luther at the University of Wittenberg, and, and Luther was very popular, and, and Frederick just, he, he just liked the guy. <laughs> but, and, and so Luther had that kind of protection about him. Tyndale did not. Tyndale 
walked for 12 years, had to move about with a target on his back and a price on his head. So he had, a, had to account for every day. And that's why I say he is, there's such a powerful empathy uh, with him and, and, and uh, the Apostle Paul. But here are the three things. First of all, it's Christian community. All of these guys wrote about Christian community, about the importance of Christian community, and how for them it became refuge, it became sanctuary, it became safety. Because if you're like Tyndale, if you're traveling around having to hide, you you have to depend on others to take you in. And uh, there were some, there was a group of businessmen, wool merchants mainly in England, who were supporting. Uh, Tyndale and others, they would smuggle Bibles in or smuggle people in, friends of Tyndale and stuff. Um, so Christian community was a was a big deal. The second one is the love of Christ. Now, it's it's almost it's almost it, well, it's very difficult. So I will start saying it's almost impossible, but it but you you would think Christian community and the love of Christ really are almost one and the same thing because that's where Tyndale found. Uh, he found the love of Christ to be more profound as between his brothers and sisters in the Lord. And they depended on that. They were sanctuary to each other, especially those who were hiding. So you've got, and it was very important to him. I mean, the, the strength of Christ in him and Christ in others seeking Christ in, in his friends. Um, for instance, um, Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther talked about that too. Um, he said that, uh, um, that it, here's to quote Luther says a Christian man lives not to himself but in Christ and his neighbor. Otherwise, he is not a Christian. He lives he lives in Christ through faith and in his neighbor through love. And it's like it's like, and I get this in Tyndale too that if Christ lives in my neighbor, and if I want to fellowship with Christ, then I can fellowship through fellowship with Christ in and through my neighbor. And so. So you've got Christian community, you've got the love of Christ. And the third thing, and probably the main thing that, that bound all of the reformers together, and they're all very vocal about this, is the Word of God. Word, Word, Word. These men and women had to have hard Word in them just to function, just to get through life, because their life could be com- demanded of them any moment. David Teams here on The Intersection. Find out more at the website, davidteams.com. Next on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's actor and former Saturday Night Live cast member Victoria Jackson. In our conversation, she discussed her battle with cancer and her faith in Christ, which sustained her, as she documents in the book, Lavender Hair, 21 Devotions for Women with Breast Cancer. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Here now is Victoria Jackson. Everybody's first feeling is shock because that always happens to other people. And it's not in my family. It's not genetic. Um, I thought, well, I, I'm, I'm about due for a tragedy because I haven't really had one yet. Uh, my daughter almost died in a car accident, and that was the closest I'd come to a tragedy. But she did not. Thank you, Jesus. And um, so my next thought was, you know, how did I get this? Well, well, you know, if I know what caused it, I can prevent it from coming back. Uh, the, The doctors were very quick to cut it out, burn it out, poison it out. Had mastectomy, chemo, radiation, went bald. Bald, being bald was the hardest part. I guess vanity is is a sin that a lot of us have. 
I didn't know. I didn't even think I was vain until I was bald, and I just hated that. <laughs> and I couldn't find any wig or scarf that fit how I, my personality. So that's one of the reasons I named the book Lavender Hair. Um, I kind of found that the grayish lavender wig was my favorite, and I put it in braids, and that kind of felt like my personality. But also I named the book after this song I wrote while I was in chemo. And it's a song about my husband, and um, basically, I was at my birthday, and my bald head started growing hair in, and it was coming in gray. And I thought, gray? And my friend Judy said, it's it's not gray, it looks lavender, because she's always loving and trying to <laughs> cheer people up. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw my husband saying, yeah, it looks lavender, it looks lavender, and, which, you know, is the new hip thing with the youngsters, you know. And um, I thought that was so sweet that he was always trying to make me feel pretty during this ugly year. And so I wrote the song about him, and then I named the book after the song, and then I put the song in the book. And well, it's on my website in a music video, <laughs> victoriajackson.com. Awesome. Well, during the treatment, obviously you're someone that is perceived to be a rather funny, laughing, joyful happy person so did did humor play a role in in helping you to really sustain uh, sustain through this treatment yes i think that all good comedy comes from pain and i think that all good art comes from pain and so i i also thought god turns makes beauty from ashes and romans 8:28 says god um, all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And I said, well, I wonder what beautiful thing God could make out of this. And I kept a journal through my chemo and everything, and uh, and then it turned into a book. So I'm hoping that maybe there's some breast cancer women who don't know about Jesus, and maybe they'll read it and learn about him. And the Bible is the Word of God, and it brought me a lot of comfort when I was weak and scared, and I kept quoting Psalm 23, and I played worship music all the time. And I understand you also played the ukulele a bit, even during this difficult time. Yes, my two favorite new songs <laughs> I wrote during this time. It's a broken world, baby, and uh, uh, because everyone has a cross they have to bear, and um, lavender hair. And you know the verse that kept popping into my life through this year of treatment was, uh, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And I kept running into that verse everywhere I'd go. And it's a win-win. If you know the Lord, it's a win-win. You either get to be with him quicker or you you get to live longer and tell more people about him. Victoria Jackson here on The Intersection. Her website is victoriajackson.com. This is the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on the podcast. Also, you can get subscribed to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs can be accessed. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. 
And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Todd Burpo has served as a pastor and a firefighter. He wrote the book a number of years ago entitled Heaven is for Real, which was made into a feature film. Recently, he shared with me about some of the subject matter of his latest book, God is for Real, and he longs to answer your most difficult questions. This is Todd Burpo now. As we traveled the world, literally from Singapore to Brazil to cities to small towns across the United States, you know, as people were discovering, you know, the innocence and the just the uh, accuracy of what Colton was saying, you know, here's this little boy saying, I met the God of heaven, and this is who he is. I think a lot of people that were on the fence, you know, we, we live in a world today where, you know, there's a plurality of gods, pick which one you want, and and here's this little boy saying, oh, no, you can't do that. This is the God of heaven. And as a lot of people have accepted that and realized what he's standing for is the truth, they're like, well, what does this God want from me? You know, I've heard so many different things about God. What does he expect out of me? What does he like? And and in my life, you know, heaven seems so far away. Is God far away? Does he care about me? All these questions that we've been bombarded with, and they're legitimate, and many times they're hard. I think, you know, even this week, you know, I write about a chapter in chapter 3, and God is for real about the Sandy Hook shooting. And here, this week, you know, the mm. shooting in Las Vegas reminds us of the evil in the world. Darkness, and what is darkness? What, 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 what can it do in someone's life? And, and people always go back and say, well, how could someone snap? And we, we live in a world where it's like, okay, does God care? Can we do something about it? And, and, and what about this evil? And all these questions... You know, people are struggling to find answers to. And unfortunately, sometimes pastors like myself kind of, we, we don't have all the clear-cut answers, and sometimes we can't tell you everything that God's doing. So we avoid some hard questions. And um, my being a fireman for all these years now, I just finished almost 19 years of being an emergency responder. And, and when you go out to a, a scene where there's a wreck and there's a fatality and someone just lost their child or someone just lost their parent, you can't avoid the hard questions, and you can't use this this church talk. You you have to get real with people. And I think uh, being an emergency responder and working among other firemen and EMTs for all these years has really helped me to be kind of plain-spoken, down-to-earth, honest. I cry with people, pray with people, and yet here's God I find him present in these tragedies. And and uh, this is the God that I'm standing up for and just trying to have the same conversation in this book that I've had so many times uh, out as a fireman. Hmm. Well, and we look at some of these matters, and of course our hearts continue to be heavy in the aftermath of the Las Vegas massacre. You mentioned that you had addressed the Sandy Hook tragedy from a few years back, and people do have questions about yeah. evil in the world and suffering. And people also ask these questions about why God allows bad things to happen. How do you deal with that in this book, God is for Real? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that a lot of people have done that I've run into in life, they're kind of spiritual dabblers. You know, they they kind of, uh, well, I try this religion, I try this religion, and, and many times their faith statements are uh, a conglomeration of uh, of different things they've heard over the years, and there's no clarity about the real God. And many times we we made him so small, he's he's a God that really couldn't help us anyway. But the real God of heaven, 
<laughs> the real God that my son met and the real God that fortunately exists is so much bigger than these little small thoughts and notions we have. And to open people's eyes up. But one of the big things God has done is given us the ability to choose. And unfortunately, so many of us, we don't look to God until after something bad has happened. But what if we looked to God before? You know, right now all the stories are happening just like they did with the Sandy Hook shooter. What caused this person to break? What what signs could have we have seen? And and, and, and the press and the media and everyone's going to do that again. But let's look at our society. You know, all of us, uh, we know what it's like to step into a dark room. You know, when, when you go from light to darkness, all of a sudden you can't see. But if you stand in the darkness long enough, your eyes start to adjust, don't they? You, you start seeing the walls. You start seeing furniture. You, you start being able to, to walk in the darkness. That's what's happened to our country. Todd Burpo here on The Intersection. You can find out more by visiting the website GodIsForRealBook.com. Next on this edition of The Intersection, it's Johnny Moore, founder of the Kairos Company. In our recent conversation, he shared about his new book, The Martyr's Oath, Living for the Jesus They're Willing to Die For, a collection of stories of the faith of persecuted Christians. Here now is Johnny Moore. One of my goals in in writing this new book called The Martyr's Oath is to highlight the fact that ISIS and ISIS-like terrorists are still at work around the world, even as ISIS's influence has has diminished in Iraq and Syria. I mean, the the fact is, is that in Nigeria last year, Boko Haram killed more Christians than ISIS did all of last year uh, in Syria. And so in Nigeria, more Christians were killed by terrorist group people hardly don't even know anything about. You know, then ISIS killed people, you know, in Syria. So there, there is a crazy thing happening in our world today. There is more Christian persecution at this moment than any moment in Christian history. The Pope said there have been more martyrs uh, in the last century than in all the previous centuries combined. And so what I did in the Martyrs' Oath is I, I put a team all around the world, and we interviewed people, regular people, and th- these are their firsthand accounts of persecution and also perseverance. And what's amazing about these stories is, you know, as difficult as they are you know, to read sometimes, uh, in the end, uh, they, they bring so much hope and so much inspiration uh, because of the power of Jesus in their lives in the face of insurmountable odds. You know, we have to learn lessons in the persecuted church, and we also have to speak up for them. It's a both and, not an either or. There is widespread persecution all around the world. What? Why do you think that is? It's because people can get away with it. You know, when people can get away hmm. with with enslaving children, when they can get away with burning down churches and imprisoning and torturing pastors, they're going to do it. You know, it's the the one of one of the most famous Christian leaders in the world in the heart of the ISIS crisis. He he said. He said, you ask yourselves why these things happen. I'll tell you why, they're ha- why they happen. They happen because there are people willing to do them, and there are other people willing to remain silent. Now, and, and, you know, and it's not just a human rights issue for people. I mean, for the Church of Jesus Christ, I mean, this is our responsibility. The Bible says if one member of the body of Christ suffers, we all suffer. This is our family that's suffering, and, and it's my conviction that there's a whole part of the Christian life we can't even understand if we don't understand the persecuted church. I mean, when you read the New Testament, the New Testament is a series of books either written to persecuted believers or about persecuted believers. And so there are all these sort of pieces of the Christian life that you never get unless you dive in to this issue. And it's my conviction, you know, and and part of my goal in writing the Martyr's Oath 
you know, to awaken the church to all of these missing parts of our Christian uh, experience. You know, I, I just I just believe that we shouldn't talk about this one Sunday a year, you know, on a persecution emphasis, but we ought to 52 weekends a year, seven days a week, have this in our hearts and our minds. Mm-hmm. We have to tell the stories to our children. You know, we, this just needs to be part of our lives, as it was part of the lives of the early Christians and the New Testament. I mean, we're seeing first-century persecution in the 21st century, but the good news is we're also seeing first-century Christianity in the 21st century. There's an authenticity and a power and miracles and all these things that we haven't seen in a long, long time to the degree we're seeing them now, because they go together. You know, when the enemy tries to kill us, the light shines even brighter. Talk about the mindset of so many of these people that you interviewed for the book. How is it that they keep going? Because obviously, I, I think you'd say from a from a standpoint of a human perspective, well, this would completely discourage you. From a biblical perspective, and, and we see it, you know, Jesus said, blessed are those that are persecuted. Persecution is, is worn like a badge of honor for so many of these people, isn't it? It is. And, and the amazing thing is that, you know, I, I believe they're helped supernaturally, in a, in a supernatural way. And they only, and we will only, experience that either through their experience, through their testimony, or through our own experience, if, God forbid, we ever face these things. And, you know, that, and that's why, the, you know, the book is, is called The Martyr's Oath, because, you know, I, I experienced this in India in a Bible school graduation. 2,000 Indian Bible school graduates, they took a martyr's oath before they received their, their diploma. I mean, they, they had to pledge that they were willing to, if they had to face life or death for Jesus, they would take it. And, you know, it was an easy question, you know, for them to answer. It's a hard question for us, but it was an easy question for them. Johnny Moore is a member of the President's Evangelical Advisory Board. You can learn more about the book by going to the website martyrsoath.com. Finally, here on The Intersection, it's Michael Heiser. He serves as a scholar-in-residence at Faith Life Corporation, the makers of Logos Bible Software. In our recent conversation, he approached a number of different passages and concepts of the Scriptures dealing with the realm of the supernatural, as he relates in the book, The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. This is Michael Heiser now. I'm trying to do a lot of work you know, to help people penetrate the veil, so to speak, have the ancient writer in their head. And and the dirty little secret of the book is that there is nothing in this book that has not passed through academic peer review. I write for peer review all the time. I'm a scholar. You know, I I know how that works. Everything is just fully referenced. I give you the, the bunny trail to trace down all my sources. I'm not giving you any opinions. All of the, the, the content in Unseen Realm as, as sort of fantastic and, you know, in some cases controversial as it is, this is all normal stuff in the scholarly community. The problem is that it never filters down to the church. And so I'm, I'm trying in, in this book, in Bible Unfiltered, Supernatural is another book I wrote that's sort of a, a, a distilled version of Unseen Realm, kind of with all the academic stuff taking out just the core ideas. What I'm trying to do is communicate high-level biblical scholarship, because there are scholars that that devote their whole lives to reading the Bible in light of the ancient worldview. I'm trying to take that and make it decipherable to the normal person in the pew who's interested. So it's no more complicated than that. Well, you mentioned a phrase called the divine counsel. 
In Psalm 82, mm-hmm. the first verse, reading out of the ESV, it says, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. What does that mean? Elaborate on that and how it applies <laughs> to you and me. Yeah, that was a watershed passage for me, I, and I related in the book. Before church one day, I, there was a friend of mine in the Hebrew Studies Department, and we were talking about something. I don't know what it was, but I'll never re- never forget you know, how it ended. He handed me his Hebrew Bible and said, you need to read Psalm 82, 1 in Hebrew. And so I did. It's very easy. It says Elohim. Again, that's a very common word for God in the Old Testament. Elohim Nitzav Ba'adat El. God has taken his place or taken his stand in the divine council. And then the next phrase is the kicker. The pair of Elohim, Yishpot, in the midst of the Elohim, he passes judgment. So you have Elohim two times in the same verse. One is the God of the Bible. The other is a group in the midst of the Elohim. And so, you know, how do we process this? It's not polytheism. That's where critics, you know, critical scholars go to right away. But they they do so because they assign a specific set of attributes to the word Elohim. And that's where things go wrong. And and, and frankly, Christians are prone to do that, too. When we we see the letters G-O-D, our brain sort of assigns a specific set of attributes to those letters, G-O and D. That's not the way biblical writers understood Elohim. How do we know that? Do we have to trust Mike because he has a Ph.D.? No. We, we observe that Elohim is used of six different entities in the Hebrew Bible. And I go through this in the book. That alone tells you that the biblical writers are not assigning attributes to the name, to the term, to the word. Elohim just is, is like a, a synonym for spirit being, ruchot in Hebrew, the spirit beings. They're, they're supernatural beings. It's all the term means. So it's God and his heavenly host. We don't, we don't have polytheism here. Uh, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is unique among the heavenly host, and that gets described in lots of passages. But this is an eye-opening passage because it means that the Elohim, the gods, are real spiritual beings. God doesn't preside over a bunch of cartoon characters like the Marvel Avengers. <laughs> okay, it means that God is is the Lord of real spiritual beings. When the Bible says that Yahweh is the God of gods, it means exactly what it says. Okay, these are not fictional characters. These are spiritual beings. Many of them are hostile to the God of Israel. They're in rebellion. And we just don't, you know, we're, we're taught all oh, the gods are idols. Oh, so now Psalm 82 has idols working for God because you go down to verse, you go through the verse and God is mad at them because they're not doing the tasks he has assigned. I got news for you. Idols don't work for God, and God doesn't use idols for his tasks. You know, it just doesn't work. These pat, you know, evangelical, you know, explanations for what are what is very plain language to an Israelite really needs examination, and frankly, it needs to be exposed, because this passage filters into lots mm. of other ones, and it really matters for understanding some specific points of theology in the Hebrew Bible and in the, in the New Testament as well. Michael Heiser here on The Intersection. You can learn more through the website drmsh.com. 
Well, we are nearing the end of today's edition of the Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand. You can also get subscribed to the Intersection Podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs can be accessed. You can also follow me on Twitter and get connected to the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also find a link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for coming along with me on this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.